We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning. We're going to finish the chapter. I'm uh, I'm really grateful for the lyrics of that song, for the truth. I was going to just jump right in, but our sins are many and His mercies are more. I think it's good to just reflect on that. If everyone could just do a self-assessment and how we feel about ourselves and and if you feel good about yourself because you're, you think you're a good person, that's sin. If you feel shame of who you are because you know that you're not a good person, that's sin. And our sins individually are many. Our sin nature is powerful, but God is more powerful and His mercy is more. And it's a beautiful truth and it connects well with uh, this, this concept that we need to live hope. Hope is vital. It's a vital ingredient to life, and it's, it's what we're going to talk about today. When we consider the resurrection, we need to think of the hope it brings. There's so much hope. If you're feeling hopeless this morning, I want you to know, I, I wish I could just force it into people. I wish everyone in here could leave here filled with hope. I pray everyone in here could leave filled with hope because we have reason to be hopeful. If you're in Christ, if you're born again, there's a hope, and there's a hope that's, that's going to get us somewhere, unlike some of the ways we see hope in the world, like, it, like a wishful thinking. I really hope this works out. It's, it's for sure. It's guaranteed. It's been accomplished. And so I think it would do us well to consider what exactly hope is. So I, I did some just reflecting, some pondering, if you will, on what hope is. And I think it's very much connected to what we desire. It's connected to our idea of success, whatever way you want to define success, I think it's connected to what you think you need and maybe even to what you need. So when we have desires and we have needs and we desire to be successful, we desire these needs to be met. So think of it as simply as paying bills or, or living a cush life. Your hope then is going to be in making money, getting a job to make money, or getting an education to get a job to make money. Our hope it lines up with whatever we need or desire. So if we need or desire to please our parents or to impress peers or to prove people wrong or to stay out of jail, whatever it is, we'll then put hope in our good performance or right behavior or presenting ourselves well or cleaning up and looking the part or gaining accomplishments and accolades. We'll put our hope in those things because we, we want people to look at us with favor, whether it's our parents or peers or whoever it might be. Based on whatever the need is, so if it's a need to feel safe, a need to be comfortable, a need to belong, a need to be wanted, uh, to find rest, to lose weight, to get, rid, to get rid of somebody in your life, to get a girl, to get a guy, to survive, whatever your need or desire is, we search instinctively, I think instinctively, by nature, we search for a solution in someone or something, and it's that someone or something that we place our hope. And it's a question of what can we gain? How can we win? How can we overcome? How can I have peace? How can I have joy? We're hopeful for something. and We're searching for some place to put that hope. So hope in itself is nothing unless there's something or someone to put the hope in. So we often put it in institutions and individuals and political parties or our own skills and abilities and our own efforts. We often wrongly place hope in worldly things, and we think it's going to meet our needs. We think our desires are going to be met there, and it's at best temporary, and the, 
It's all based on our definition of success. So even at the, the definition of what we're hopeful for, it may be off from the beginning. So this hope is a complicated thing is what I'm getting at. And these hopes aren't necessarily bad. None of the hopes I named are necessarily evil by nature. In fact, I think it, to some extent, all hope is good hope. Unless you're hoping somebody dies. I mean, you know what I mean? All hope for good things is in some way good because it fuels the doing of good things. But I want to submit to you this morning that if these, these smaller hopes are our ultimate hope, then it's going to lead to our destruction. And, and it's a problem. It's superficial. It leaves us wanting until it destroys us. And these little hopes often point to where our ultimate hope lies. So if you are hopeful someone dies, that's a sign. But even hope in good things, even if you put too much hope in education or a good family or appearing good, I wore this shirt today, no tie, button all the way up so you guys would think I look good. I was really hoping someone would say, I like your outfit, you know, thank you. So we have all these ways that we hope for things. But where should our ultimate hope lie? And you came here this morning to worship God, and you know I'm a preacher, so you're probably already assuming Jesus. But how do we do that? How do we really put our hope in Jesus? What do we look towards? What are we trying to fix? Where's the problem? How do we apply these things? And how do we know if our hope is actually in Jesus or if we're just saying it is? So why don't you consider this morning? Let's try to read ourselves. Some gathered here this morning excited to celebrate a resurrected king. Some of you drove here from however far you came. You got out of bed before that. You got dressed. You ate breakfast, whatever you did, preparing yourself to be here out of habit. But hopefully there was some sense that there's a desire, a draw to gather with believers to celebrate Jesus. And you, you do that because you know he's good and you know he's gracious and you want to celebrate him. You want to rest in the arms of your father. And you come here to do it with your brothers and sisters, to celebrate his goodness and grace. You show up ready to praise him. You you feel the anxieties in life that are common, but you lay them down because you see Jesus is better. And he frees us from that. So you're surrendering yourself to the king. You're hopeful that in surrendering yourself to the king, you'll, you'll find your life filled with goodness and joy that's not found anywhere on this earth, and you will then share that joy with others and, and be about this kingdom work of making disciples. You're fighting to give yourself to him more and more. Your ultimate hope is secure in Christ and what he's accomplished. And then for others, and even some of those who can possibly fit into that category other times, so for others and for other times, uh, it's not that easy. And you instead are... Out of here out of obligation, or you're here because it's just a rhythm of your life, or you have this idea of success that you're pursuing, and this is a part of that. You want to be successful, so showing up to a church is a part of that success. And you feel like you have something to prove. Like, don't just deny this as I'm saying it. Really consider. You feel like you have something to prove to somebody. You want to make sure people know you're a good person. You want to make sure your parents know that you're still going to church even though you came to college. You're not like those dropouts. You want to you prove something to God, maybe. You want Him to know that you're a good person and you do it right things, and so you're going to show up. And yes, you believe in God, but there's this crushing shame or this, this complex anxiety that reminds you often that you're not good enough and you hate that 
about God. And you live your life with misplaced hope, and I think that that's true of all of us at times. But I think maybe for some this morning, it may be specifically true of you. And so I hope that you find freedom. We know what's true. We know the gospel. But if we're honest, it doesn't always win. Because we let ourselves win. We let our flesh win. Now, the gospel is one. Jesus has conquered the grave. It's finished. But in our day-to-day lives, we don't remember the resurrection. We instead focus on our hands. We think our success is in our hands instead of the hands of our God. Truth is stripped of its power and its beauty because we've placed our hope in worldly things. Not just worldly things, like secular things, like getting wasted, but good things in the world that we think are going to satisfy. Like a happy family or good education. These aren't bad things. Nobody says you're wasting your life because you spent a lot of money to go to college. But if your hope is there, it's not going to go well. No matter how successful you are here. We know these things are true. I'm not telling you new information. But it's about guiding our hope. Where does our hope lie? We have profound, we, we profoundly strip truth if we just make it perfunctory or, or superficial. And it's just a platitude that we quote. We can quote scripture to ourselves, but if we don't have our hope in Christ, it's, it's not the truth to us. It's a, it's a weird thing to say, but we know it. We know ourselves. We know that we end up there. So we have to put our hope in Christ, and we're going to work on that this morning as we work through 1 Corinthians 15. We've seen Paul do some, some great apologetics in the chapter so far. He's argued for gospel truth in verses 1 through 4 with, from the authority of Scripture. He says, according to Scripture. And in verses 5 through 11, he's argued for gospel truth through eyewitness accounts, evidence that Jesus rose. So many people saw him, including Paul. And then he argues from logic and reason in the chapter or verses 12 through 34 that we talked about last week. And so the argument has been made and it's been made well. In fact, there's no doubt the argument's won. Resurrection is true. The resurrection is real. The implications are wonderful and his point has been made. You would think he would just drop the mic and be done, but instead he presses in more. He knows that there's some questions that are lingering. He knows that though he's presented a reason for hope, that we still are going to struggle to put our hope in that mysterious thing that we call the resurrection. So he goes on to press the point. He knows that we need him to, and he presses the point so that we could increase our hope by seeing the greatness of the truth. So the question is simple. Do you have hope in the resurrection? But then working that out is a little more complex. So let's start in verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? So he's laid out resurrection and he says, but still someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? And his response, you foolish person, exclamation point, you foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. He's just dropping this wisdom, this this nugget of beauty in the middle of this, like with ease. So let's not miss it. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. 
Then he illustrates it with general revelation, pointing to nature and how God created things to exist. Verse 37. And what you sow is not the body that, that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he chose, and to each kind of seed its own body. So he's making something so mysterious. Resurrection, it's mysterious, easy for us to get our minds around. So think of like an acorn, just to make it southern. Think of an acorn. Looking at an acorn, I should have brought one. I'm not an illustration kind of guy. Look at this acorn. Look at it. You would never see an oak tree staring at an acorn, right? Or, or even more complex, if think of an apple seed. You wouldn't imagine an apple tree, but you also couldn't imagine an apple looking at an apple seed. So, so he's saying, put a kernel in the ground, it dies, and then it grows and produces something you could never imagine. So we're foolish to even try to figure out and envision what the resurrected body would look like. There's great diversity to this as well. So verse 39, for not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenlies is one of one kind. The glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for stars differ from stars in glory. So describing the glories of the different created bodies, he's describing this great complexity. We can't get our minds around what everything looks like. You can't imagine what an oak tree or an apple looks like based on the seeds you see. You can't, you can't even understand what individually our resurrected bodies would look like because even the, the bodies in creation are all different and they have different glories. Even the stars differ from the different stars. It's impossible for us to fully grasp what resurrection looks like. But he's saying that's not the point. The point is, we're going to be resurrected. Don't keep asking these questions about what's it going to be like. I mean, sure, it's okay to wonder. Every kid does that, especially when you find out you're going to be singing songs for 10,000, 10,000. Gosh, I don't want to do that. It's going to be different from what we know. That's the point he's making. Even what we know is different from what we know. But when it comes to human life, there's an inherent dignity that we sense is different. There's, there's diversity all around. We know it's unlike anything else. We can feel it. And obviously, considering death will help us understand how we value different things. So think about the, the stuff he named. It's kind of interesting that he, he kind of did creation in reverse when he talked about it. He went from humans to animals to birds to fish to heavenly bodies, earthly bodies, when creation was made the other way. I'm, I'm going to let that just linger. We're not going to talk about why it's interesting. When we talk about death of these different things, these things in creation, as we get closer to humanity, we feel it more. So consider when a star dies. It happens, I know. If you didn't know, it's going to be all right. It doesn't affect us. We don't really care. Unless you study that sort of thing, you probably it doesn't affect your day to day. Unless the sun dies, then we're going to have a problem and we'd all know about it because the sun is nearer to us. Death of a tree, maybe it was a special tree in your life, and so it's a little more meaningful, but death of plants is still not that, it's not going to affect us that much. Death, death of fish or birds or other animals, maybe a little closer to home for PETA and for some people. Pets, I mean, that's sad. I don't want to think about it. But the death of a human. Now, especially someone close to you, but even someone at a distance, 
The death of a human feels different. That's why we try and strip away humanity from the unborn so that we don't feel so bad. That's why we try and strip away humanity from people of different races or of different countries so we don't feel so bad. Because when it's humanity, there's a dignity, there's a weight to the dignity of humanity by God's design. And so so it stands to reason the glorification of humanity will be far greater than anything we could ever imagine because we can't even get it looking at stars. We can't get it looking at creation. So whatever it is that we're looking forward to, it's going to be amazing. Not only do we know it, but we can feel it. And then that that's, uh, brings another great point of proximity when we're talking about we feel it more because it's closer to us. I mean, I, I don't want to get off track, but I'm just thinking about like in the news when you see people who look like you being killed in the street or, or when you see people look, who look like you being separated from their family. I think that we would do well to draw near to people who don't look like us is the point so that we could feel it. And we have a great model of that because our God stepped down and took on flesh. So we're going to get into this in a minute, but we're talking about becoming something immortal when we're mortal. But God, who was immortal, is immortal, stepped in and took on flesh to be perishable so that he could be killed. And he drew near to us and he empathized with us and he felt our pain and he gave his life up and he was resurrected. And we follow that model. So in the mission, in life, we follow that model. We draw near so that we can empathize with the hope that even if it kills us, we'll rise. Amen. We get a hint of this beauty of resurrection glory by considering the diversity of the bodies of heaven and earth. So just look at the sky, look around you. There's variety, there's beauty, there's brightness in verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it's even with notable glory in creation, namely in humanity, it's broken. It's perishable. It's weak. It's natural. It's not what it should have been. It's not what it should be. It's not what it will be. The most beautiful things you've ever seen, mountain ranges, sunsets, whatever is beautiful to you, the most glorious thing you can imagine having seen in your life is broken. It's not what it should be. So this again stirs up in us hope for something beyond what we think is all that. Because it's not. It's broken. The most wonderful relationship you have, the best person you know, the best you've ever felt, is broken. The dead body must be buried. And when it is, it will be dramatically different than what was, what was here before. When it's raised... It will be dramatically different of a greater glory, a spiritual one, yet physical, spiritual body that is better. Verse 45, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being and last Adam became a a life giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust, the second man from heaven. 
As was the man of dust, so are also are those who are of the dust. And as, and as is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been, or just have, sorry, just as we have borne the image of the man of the dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So in this first Adam, he brought death. He sinned. He brought sin into the world and brought death and has passed that down father to son, father to son, and daughters are included in that again and again and again until a man came, not born of any man, but born of a virgin and of God. And he brought from heaven a new nature, though he was fully man, also fully human, truly man, truly, I mean, truly God, fully man, fully God, truly man, truly God. And this God man took on the flesh so that he could suffer and be, be broken as the world is broken, so that he could be murdered and destroyed as sin murders and destroys. And in Adam, we only receive death, but in the new Adam, the new and better Adam, we are guaranteed life. There is a guarantee that we are being perfected for life eternally. So we were in this nature, we are being perfected. We are being made able to contain all that is to come. We, in our resurrection, will be able to experience life in the presence of God, in fellowship with God, worshiping God. And in the current state, we could never do that. So it was necessary for Christ to come, take on flesh, and then prepare for us what we, what we have to look forward to. We see this clearly in Philippians chapter 3. We, it talks about us being citizens of heaven, and as these citizens, foreigners here, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. So our God is powerful and He is able. So as broken as we see it is, He's powerful and He is able to change it and make us new so that we have the capacity to fellowship with him. And that is only possible in a resurrected body. And we see that in the rest of chapter 15. So let's finish the chapter and then we'll do some application. Verse 50. I tell you this, brothers and sisters, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That's what we just talked about. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. There must be a change. So there must be death so that there can be a change. But, verse 51, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. So for Paul, he doesn't know exactly when Jesus is coming. He just feels it's imminent. It's happening. It's coming. So he always writes with this imminence, this urgency. We must teach the gospel. We must make disciples. It has to be now because Christ is coming and we are still in that time. There's this urgency to it. We don't know when it's going to happen. Not everybody's going to die, but you're going to die. So we have to live with this tension in our head. And somehow, even for those who don't die, there's this mysterious change that still happens. Even though you didn't go into the ground like a seed and die, still the change happens because you cannot be in a perishable body and inherit imperishable things. Verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. So this is the sound of battle coming to an end. The last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, 
Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, the beautiful saying, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? There's this taunting of death. What do you got on us now, death? Nothing is the, the rhetorical question that is answered. No, nothing. Death, you have nothing. Verse 56, the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, in light of the glorious theological truth that he just laid out, he offers this pastoral application. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So there's still work to do. With all that we know, that with all that we're hopeful for, it's with that hope that we are empowered and fueled to do this work. And because we have the hope, we know the work is not in vain. This means the proclamation of good news. This means the sacrifice of everything you can sacrifice for the sake of Christ being known. It's not in vain. The truth that we proclaim is not a lie. And giving And giving everything that we have to this gospel-saturated life is not in vain. Because we have a hope in the resurrection. It's worth it. There's no suffering you have to endure. There's no giving up of anything that won't be declared worth it. Because none of it's in vain. Truth is, there's a great hope beyond everything you could cling to here and now. Gospel Gospel labor will never be in vain. And it's not because... We're guaranteed life's going to be easy. It's not because we're going to be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous here and now. It's not, because, it's not even because this idea of success that the crossing church has defined will be achieved. The crossing church may be ineffective and die. And, and you know what? We're still going to have resurrection. There's still hope. The, all the work we put into this, all the money we poured into it, all the time we invested, none of it will ever be in vain. Somehow, God uses all of it for His glory. It's never in vain. He will finish this work here. It will be accomplished. God will do good things because a good God does good things. And we have hope because He's faithful. We have hope because Christ is risen. We have hope because we will rise. Death is swallowed up in victory. There's reason to be fueled with hope to do this good work. And ultimately, we're not in control. So just let it go and rest. We're not in control of our lives. That's what, make, that's what makes hope hopeful. I don't know if you keep up on statistics, but the last time I checked, 10 out of every 10 people die. You're going to die. You are going to die. Say it to yourself. I'm going to die. Think on it. Even if you're the kind of person that spirals into anxiety, just think on it. You're going to die. And because that's a reality, it's imperative we know where we can put our hope. It's not going to be on clinging to life because it's not going to happen. So what hope do we have? When death looms over us and casts a shadow of deep darkness? Well, we have hope because even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the deepest darkness, our Savior is with us. The life of Christ is with us. We can put our hope in that because He is not dead. 
He's alive. And we're comforted by his rod and his staff. The good shepherd has a rod and a staff for correction and direction and protection. And he's for us. It's not going to be easy because sometimes discipline hurts. But our good shepherd is with us even in the deepest, darkest valley. When death casts its shadow, Christ has victory over death. Our needs and our desires have power over us, but they are subject to whatever the remedy is, the power of the remedy. So we will find a remedy that is greater than the problem. And whenever we find a remedy that is greater than the problem, we find hope. And death is a big problem for which there's only one remedy, one great hope, one great power, and that's the resurrection. And that's why we look to it again and again. That's why Paul takes time to tell us the gospel in the beginning of chapter 15 and then take time to explain the importance of resurrection and then finish with, remember, your labor is not in vain. And the hope we have in the resurrection is not just for eternity, but it's for here and now. So one commentary I read, I don't remember which one, so just one commentary out there, said, the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead makes it clear that God's purpose has never been simply that of saving souls for a disembodied existence in heaven, as though creation itself was of mere temporal usefulness and significance. But creation turns out to be not simply the context in which God is working out his redemptive work, but reflects instead the breath of God's redemptive concern and plan. So what this means is the gospel is holistic. It's not just about your soul. It's about your body. God is restoring all of creation. So redemption is about your soul. That We've always made it about that. Preach the gospel that souls would be saved. It's, it's always been about your soul. But it's also cosmic. It's about the restoration of the universe. A redemption of God's people to be about the work of restoration in the world. So bodies matter. People matter. Creation matters. We should steward these things well. And resurrection is evidence of that. We don't just make converts and call it a wrap. But we care for them soul and body. Yes, we care for their soul because the soul is eternal. And the eternal things are most significant. But catch this. The resurrection makes physical things eternal. So physical things are also significant. Gospel belief, therefore, compels us to a love that cares for body and soul. God cares about all of his creation holistically. That's why in verse, back in verse 54, I don't know if it's going to be on the slides or not, but it says, we, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then death is swallowed up. So the perishable has to put on the imperishable and the mortal has to put on immortality in order for death to be swallowed up. What's fascinating about this is Christ has done that in reverse. The imperishable put on what is perishable. The immortal put on what is mortal in order that he could be destroyed so that the worst things in life don't look so bad. And then he put back on what is imperishable, showing that we too can join him in that. So think about the worst things in your life. Let's go back to the spiral of anxiety. Think about how you've been wronged. Think about your deepest pain. Now, you don't have to go there. Obviously, you're free to do what you want, but consider the implications of the resurrection. It's important that we consider our suffering as we thought of the suffering of Christ. It's important that we consider our biggest fears as we see fear 
leave us when we look at the face of the resurrected Christ. All the ways in which this present here and now, the sin in your life brings grief and brings grief into the world, whether it comes in, in the destruction of human beings in abortion or in race riots or in whatever it might come, whether it comes in the destruction of human beings through natural disasters like fires in California, whether it comes through the crushing of emotions and, and relationships through family feuds and political disagreements, whatever the suffering is, whatever the tension that exists, it comes to an end. Thanks be to God who gives us victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. See what Christ has done and feel hopeful. He gave up perfection to draw near to us to be destroyed. Just as he has demonstrated, we demonstrate compassion and sacrifice as we go, making disciples caring not just for their souls, but also for their bodies, not holding anything back, not holding anything back because none of this, none of this is irredeemable. None of the brokenness is irredeemable. In fact, every scar you bear has meaning. Every moment of suffering has purpose. There will come a day that God makes everything right. Everything sad becomes untrue. Everything wrecked becomes unbroken in this final day. There's great hope because creation will be reversed. The undoing of the fall is at work here and now. And we're a part of that. We will one day find that the worst things that have happened to us, the deepest pain, the deepest suffering, will only serve to enhance our eternal joy. It's all being reversed. However far you felt from God, you'll be all that more near to Him. However deep the pain has felt, you'll feel all that more full of joy. And there's hope because of the resurrection. We will know joy beyond the ceilings and walls of this broken world. We cannot lose. No matter what you give up, you cannot lose. There's hope. The joy of our glory will be greater than the scars. So live with hope placed firmly in the resurrection and find yourself being made new again and again. His mercies are renewed again and again. He's gracious beyond anything we could ever deserve. And it's sure, it's sure that in your resurrected body, your mind will be blown. It'll be beyond what we could imagine. There'll be hope met with eternal joy. I know pain hurts. I've experienced it too. But I hope that you have hope. And hope placed firmly in Christ. Our dead, we're dead in our sins. We're resurrected spiritually. We still have our grave clothes on, though. The stench of death is still on us. But we've heard our Savior call our names like he's called Lazarus out of, out of the grave. The thing about Lazarus, though, is he died again. So the struggle is real. The, the pain is present. The suffering is continuing. But there's hope for an eternal resurrection. We don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but we know it's coming. So here's what we know about it. Your battling against sin and your addictions that cause you shame will be gone once and for all. The nagging lies that tempt you to worship created things and invest energy and efforts into things here will be gone. The fear, the anxiety, the depression that victimizes you day in, day out, it will be gone. All pain associated with death and abandonment and abuse will be gone. The aching that seems to never go away 
will be gone. The pain will be gone. The suffering will be gone. The struggle will be gone. Total freedom from every effect of sin. Freedom from the very presence of sin forever. It's, it's on the edge of the horizon. We can see it coming. Our Savior will return. It will be done when He arrives. We have hope in that truth He will wipe away every tear from our eye. Death will be no more. Neither will there be suffering nor crying. No more crying. Christ is on his throne and he will rise from that throne to return and bring us home for eternity. And he will declare, behold, I'm making all things new. And we will be among those being called to this newness of life beyond what we can imagine. And we will be filled with hope because of the resurrection. And with that in mind, as the crossing church placed here in Monroe, we as our Savior step into the mess. We step into the brokenness. We give up our lives for this calling. There's nothing that you have that isn't worth sacrificing for the hope that is to come. There's a glory beyond anything we can imagine that makes all the suffering worth it, that makes the mission have purpose, that makes those lost in your neighborhood, in your workplace, worth being around however annoying they are to you, whatever you have to sacrifice to get into their house, whatever effort you have to put into it to bring others into this kingdom that is on the edge of the horizon. It's coming. And for many, they will not experience the hope that we just celebrate. They will not experience the hope of new things. For many, there is death on the horizon. For many, there is no no hope in anything eternal. And we carry it with us. As Christ came, we go. We make disciples caring not just for souls, but for their bodies. Feed them. We care for their bodies. Fight with them for justice. Because dying bodies matter. We feel it. We know it's true. We proclaim its truth. And we don't just proclaim it as something without meaning. We proclaim it with the hope of the resurrection. We go and we make disciples of all nations. Let us pray. Father, I thank you so much for the truth that was declared through your word and in the Apostle Paul so long ago, writing these truths that somehow penetrate the depths of our hearts, that somehow fill us with hope, that somehow long before any of us were here, you knew what we would need and you gave it to us. And so I pray that we would cling to the truth that we will rise, that whatever in this world would come against us to destroy our bodies, and it's nothing compared to the one who has power over the flesh and of the spirit. So we submit our spirits to you as we have professing our faith, but also God help us to submit our bodies to you, to submit our lives to you, our livelihood to you, that all that we have, all that we would cling to, we'd lay down to see you glorified, to see you exalted in the lives of many. God, this is all about you. It's always been all about you. Help us to again and again come back to this truth, seeing that you are resurrecting us even now, that you are at work restoring your creation even now through the hands and the feet of your church As we submit ourselves to you in every way, help us celebrate these good truths. In Jesus' name, amen.